Well, good morning to everyone. Happy last day of our year together. We will be in 2 Kings 23, 2 Kings 23, and you might want to keep a finger there and also 2 Chronicles 35 because they're parallel passages with each other. So 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 35. Good to see you all. Dr. Yeagley has uh, graciously said I can come back and finish the series, so I have a couple more weeks, Lord willing, after today, and then we'll do a handoff of the baton. Let's pray and entrust ourselves to God's care. Father, we're thankful that we look back on our lives, our life experiences, and see difficulties and conflict, and yet see that you have walked with us all the way. You have never abandoned your people, and though while we, because of the lack of our insight and foresight, may lack hope at times, it is not because the hope itself has failed, but because our emotions have failed to perceive properly what is true about you. We ask for confidence in the new year to walk with you, with faithful hearts, with loyal hearts, and with wise hearts at the same time, that we will not engage in foolishness as far as this world is concerned, the, the, the things of this world. We would be careful to allocate our resources and our times and our opportunities with wisdom, and yet we have great hope in you, so that where we fail and where we have Um, no ability to see the future, you are yet there and providing for us. Bless us in the time that we have today, and may we hear much from your word that is directly applicable to our lives and causes us to worship you. It's, It's in Jesus' name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. If you're like me, sometimes you look back at a, on a day like this, to what has happened in the past year, the decisions you've made, the things that have come to pass, and it's not always great. Uh, Do you ever look back on the past and think, yeah, you know, I really wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't invested there. You know, things fell off a cliff after that. I I certainly wish I hadn't bought that fill-in-the-blank house, car, what (laughs) particular gift for somebody that didn't turn out to be as quite as uh, resourceful and interesting as you thought it would be. Decisions that we have made sometimes meet dead ends, sometimes reveal themselves over time to have been kind of foolish even. And hopefully we gain experience through age and practice, but that doesn't mean that our decisions themselves have lacked foolishness at times. It's a little bit frustrating, isn't it? Sometimes we make a foolish decision and wonder, is, it, is this going to lead me completely off a cliff altogether? Have I wrecked my life? Have I, has my lack of insight ruined things as far as the future is concerned? There's, why even bother going forward? Because I've made such a bad choice. There are some passages in Scripture that feel a little bit bitter to us in a special form, and that is we had greater expectations for what's going on in the text than is actually realized. And in a case like we see today, we have a man of God lifted up, and God almost turns his life around for us and looks at it in such a way that causes us to marvel at this man's righteousness. 
And yet because of a foolish choice, all of that hope, all of that desire for good, all that we would expect would come about with this guy's life is dashed to the ground and he's killed. And this brings us to a point of frustration because it feels so bitter to us because we go, okay, so the wicked made horrendous decisions at times and may have lived a long life. And we have a righteous man make just a, a dumb decision, we would say. It's not morally wicked what he did. It was just dumb what he did. And it brings catastrophe. And we almost look at the Lord and talk with him and say, Lord, if this is the way that it is, that my lack of forethought, my lack of insight can bring to ruin all of these good plans and all of my righteousness, and what's the point of the righteousness in the first place? And so a passage like this is a little bit bitter to us unless we hear what God has to say for us through his word in dealing with the folly of human life. So our overall theme today is the intersection of human folly and divine sovereignty. And it actually brings us hope because I make a lot of dumb decisions. And yet my dumb decisions can never undo God's plan. I do not thwart his ultimate purposes for my life by just the the missteps of life. Now, sin is another matter. We're not dealing with that particularly today. We're dealing with a righteous man who makes a misstep. So let's explore God's actions at this intersection of human folly and divine sovereignty together. 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 25. Before him, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with, his, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. That was a lot of alls, by the way, wasn't it? Again, the Lord keeps lifting him up and lifting him up. and lifting him. There's no one like this man in terms of his energy and zeal for the Lord once he turned to God. Verse 26, still... The Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. The first few verses of this text, and we're going to kind of suspend our theme for just a little while to build some background, but the first few verses of this text show us that divine sovereignty is just. And to begin with, that justice takes multiple forms, one of which over here is that God's justice always acknowledges righteousness or uprightness. I love another passage, that God is not slack to overlook our work of faith and labor of love. He's not unfaithful to us to ignore or pass over the righteousness that's actually done for his name's sake. And if you look at verse 25, look at the list of all of the righteousness that God holds up about this man. We literally have a permanent record, a record that will now stretch from time and into eternity. 
Josiah was in the 7th century BC. So we had 700 years there. We have 2,000 years here. 2,700 years of human history of a testimony of God holding this man up, saying what? There was no king like him before him. He turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. He acted according to all the law of Moses, nor did any arise like him after him. So do you get the significance of this? Is Josiah a sinner like we are? Yeah, he's, he's a normal human being. There were, were the uh, typical sins of the typical life of even a righteous person as he walked before the Lord as king. Every human other than Jesus Christ has been a sinner. But Josiah lived so intentionally before the Lord that the Lord acknowledged him in this incredibly lofty language. So regardless of anything else that happens in the rest of our story today, realize that God has placed a stamp on Josiah's life or, or put a, painted a banner across his life. That's the kind of stamp and banner that we would love to have God say about each one of us. If we were to stand in God's presence, he didn't do you know, all sorts of crazy flashy things, but he just looked at us and says, you turn to me with your whole heart. Your whole heart. You know, there weren't many college students like you. Or there weren't many senior saints like you. That were just loyal day after day after day. Faithful to me in all things. Like, wow. What a testimony from God's own mouth concerning his child. The justice of God's sovereignty always acknowledges uprightness. The justice of God's sovereignty, though, always opposes evil. Verses 26 and 27 follow this up. Still, the Lord did not turn. Still, the Lord did not turn. We have a righteous man, but what is he in the midst of? A righteous man in the midst of a wicked society, a wicked nation. And it's not just that the nation itself, like, like Josiah, are sinners, common sinners, but the, the nation is pervasively wicked and has a long track record. If you, if you look at it stretching back this direction, it's just evil upon evil upon evil. And God says, I cannot just pass over all of that wickedness, past and present, of Josiah's Era, though he is a righteous man. So the Lord cannot turn from the burning of his great wrath. Why? The provocations of Manasseh. And he'd already made this promise. I will remove Judah out of my sight as I've removed Israel. I will cast off this city that I have chosen and the house where I said my name would be. So the Lord is not going to pass over. The wickedness of the wicked just because there is the righteousness of the righteous right in their midst. And they're, they're side by side. He exalts his servant while saying justice necessitates the judgment of all the rest. But this is an important point to add. It will not confuse the two. God's just sovereignty will not mix the righteousness of the righteous and the wickedness of the wicked. That's very comforting. It's very comforting to know that if I walk with the Lord, there are troubles of life that still may come to bear on me. 
There's suffering. There's common suffering. There's extraordinary suffering. There's persecution. Other things can happen. But God, in his justice, is not mixing me up with the wicked and basically ignoring the righteous and saying, it doesn't matter. You live in the midst of a wicked culture, so you're just going to get caught up with all the wickedness of the wicked around you, and I'm going to destroy you along with them. You don't matter to me anymore. So the taint of a wicked world does not always accrue to everyone within that wicked world. You can choose to walk with God and be a man and a woman after his own heart. Likewise, God will not confuse the two. Sometimes it feels like he is. Well, Lord, what are you doing in American culture? It seems like every day that you go to look at the news, some, it used to be just harebrained. I wish we could go back to the day of harebrained decisions made by politicians. Now it's like they're all striving. Who can come up with a more satanic, depraved, wicked, perverse decision today? Let's dream up some new evil and stamp it into law. And you feel like, well, Lord, are you ignoring the wickedness of the wicked just because there are righteous people in the midst? Are you, are you kind of blending this all together into a pot so that we're tainted with the wickedness of the wicked and the wicked get uh, the righteousness of the right? So it's just this big mess. God says, no, look at my word. Two verses back to back. This is my servant. All of his heart all the law of Moses. No one was like him. I honor him and respect him in that. Lift him up for all generations to look at and see. Nevertheless, my wrath will not turn. Why? Because of the wickedness of the wicked. I can simultaneously exalt my servant and judge the wicked and decree my wrath that is coming. God's just sovereignty will not confuse the two. A Christian concern then is not really to save America. Josiah could not save Judah. What could he do? Do right. Walk with the Lord individually people who take upon themselves a a burden and a weight and a responsibility that God has not actually laden us with crumble under it. It's too heavy for us to carry. If you feel that your responsibility is to save America or save a country, it's way beyond your capacity. God is the only one who can save nations. Your responsibility is to do right, to be faithful within the sphere of opportunity and influence and responsibility that God has given to you, keep walking with him. And he looks at us individually within our little places of life and says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Just sovereignty will not confuse the two. Just sovereignty does not strike at mere foolishness. Now, I'm, I'm going to offer you an argument from silence here. And as you know, that's a very weak form of reasoning. But this is God's inspired word, so he gave us all the information that he intended us to know. And there is nothing in this passage that implies that what's about to happen to Josiah is God's wrath against him. That God is judging Josiah for sin in any sense. 
Okay, And that is important to the overall argument. Josiah is going to walk with the Lord, and yet in the midst of walking with the Lord, he's going to make a really bad decision. That's a decision of, we would say, practical folly. Practical foolishness. That's the, the, the young couple who gets married, and the uh, young man is thinking, well, you know, I really want my wife to be safe, right? Safe on the road. So we're going to go into tremendous debt because I want to buy her a new car so that she'll be safe on the road. And you're like, oh, good motivations, good intentions, good ideas in some sense, but horribly impractical and foolish. Don't do that. You're going to reap repercussions of practical folly even when we're not dealing with moral folly. And God's just sovereignty does not lash out at the weakness and the limitations of our own intellects. God does not look at the, just the boneheaded decisions of our life and treat them as if they are morally wicked. And that's comforting. Because again, look back at the past year. Does anything spring to mind where you said, yeah, I was really embarrassed, you know, five minutes after, two weeks after I made that decision. It didn't turn out well. And it felt like God was judging me. Well, probably not. It's probably the practical uh, consequences of a bad decision that came to accrue against you, not his um, judgment. We've done a lot of woods work in the last 10 years at our house. Uh, I've illustrated before the fact that when we bought our house, you couldn't even walk through the four acres of woods that we have. There were so many trees down on top of each other um, because the people that had the house before us were elderly and just weren't able to take care of it anymore. So it took us 10 years to clear the woods. And as my son grew old enough to help us, uh, my dad and I would talk constantly about the dangers of felling trees. Here's what you do. Here's how you fell it. Here's where you stand. Uh, You know, back off. Always leave a hinge in the tree. Always cut it this way. If it snags up top, do it this way. You know, you don't pull it down with a tractor toward yourself. What could possibly go wrong? You know, here's the way you fell trees. Here's the way you take it down. Well, one instance... And uh, it was December 10th. I actually found it on my phone because I had pictures of it. December 10th of 2018, we had a major ice storm. And a bunch of pine trees right at the corner of our property, off our property, but at the corner of it, fell and took down the power lines in the road. And Daniel was really excited and eager. Let's go help the neighbors. And I said, not now. We do not help the neighbors when it's down power lines. Okay? We let the people who know what they're doing mess with down power lines. And you think of what that situation entails. What would happen if you had a nice strapping 17-year-old and his mind runs like this? We ought to love people around us, right? True? I have great physical capacity because I'm 17 and immortal, right? True? No, okay. <laughs> like they, they think they're invincible at that stage. So, and I know how to use a chainsaw and I know how to cut trees up properly. So I am going to go chop up this tree that's on down power lines. What, what might happen? Yeah, he, he might get quite the charge out of it. And uh, you, he could actually kill himself, couldn't he? And if that were to occur, 
we wouldn't sit there and cluck our tongues and say, oh, the evil of it all. That wicked 17-year-old, God struck him down in the midst of life because of that wickedness of cutting a tree off of a power line. He should have known if he had just read the law of Moses a little more carefully that you don't cut trees off power lines. And you go, that's absurd, isn't it? In a case like that, he would be suffering the consequences of practical foolishness. You might say even just a lack of attentiveness, carelessness, or ignorance even. Ignorance has cost a lot of people their lives over time. But that would not be involving God's divine wrath and justice. So our story and the plan of God for our lives continues because the point of our text is not to isolate sovereignty, but to tie the sovereignty of God together with our theme. And so the the theme or statement of the passage is this, folly has consequences, but it cannot thwart God's purposes. So trust him, but in wisdom. We do have a responsibility to walk in wisdom, even practical wisdom in life. But ultimately, you trust him and pursue him in life. Folly has consequences, but it cannot thwart God's purposes. I had a, had a more basic uh, you know, title before, or basic theme before, and then I thought, ah, I probably can't get away with that. It was something like stupid hurts. <laughs> uh, so folly has consequences. Let's go with that one instead. Let's see how this works out in practice in our passage. The parallel text in 2 Chronicles 35 says the following, After all of this, after years of righteousness, serving the Lord, cleansing the temple, instituting, reinstituting the, the Passover and the worship of God, going all the way up to Bethel and destroying false worship up there, burning the bones of the pagan priests on the altars to desecrate the altars, and then ripping down the altars altogether and grinding them to powder. Whew. That's a lot of good work. After all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And it sounds like a history lesson, right? If you're a good Judean student sitting there in class taking notes, Necho went up to fight on the Carchemish. Okay, great. Josiah went out to meet him, but he, that is Necho, sent envoys to him, to Josiah, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now, there are two vital pieces of information we left behind in 2 Kings when we switched, and both of those occur in verse 29. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. The picture that you have here is actually of the the plain of Jezreel behind a hill. So we're going to go into a little bit of history to help us understand what's going on in this background. The plain of Jezreel and the significance of Megiddo. Okay. Megiddo is circled in the far background. This is a plain of Jezreel as uh, shot from, as the, the photo vantage point is from Mount Carmel, where Elijah confronted 
the prophets of Baal many years earlier. But you can look from Mount Carmel, because Israel's not that wide. Uh, quick interruption of my own lesson. Any of you been out west or lived out west for any length of time? Colorado-ish, Wyoming-ish? How far out in the plains can you be looking towards the Rocky Mountains and still see them? I have been there on days where you could see a hundred miles. It's really cool. We can't do that in the east. A hundred miles. You can stand on Mount Carmel and see almost all the way across Israel. The only reason you can't see all the way across Israel is right as you get towards Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, you have another mountain range, the Arbel Cliffs and some other things that pop up there. But otherwise, you would be able to see the entire land of Israel widthwise from the ocean, from the Mediterranean coast. So you're looking out into this plain of Jezreel, which is a, a vast open field, essentially, with, with mountains that kind of ring around it. Uh, for those of you who like literature, it's almost like you're looking at Mordor, except it's green and growing. You're looking at Mordor with mountains all the way around it and this big, huge plain here in the center. Actually, it even does have a big spike right in there. Okay, never mind. Mount Doom there. <laughs> That's Tabor right in the center. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte said of this area, it's the world's most natural battlefield. He wanted to fight there. He never got a chance, but he really wanted to fight there. Because you can, if you can control the passes that lead into Jezreel, you can control the influx of an enemy army. You know they're not going to circle around and attack your flanks. So it's all due to the strategies of the Napoleonic era. We can fight them all out in front of us. It's also the same place that a great battle of the future when Jesus Christ returns and destroys Antichrist will be fought. We believe. It seems like Armageddon, Armageddon is the hill of Megiddo, um, transliterated into Greek. But here are the, the factors that also come into play. Where is Megiddo? Well, I've already told you it's east of Carmel. Where is Carmel in Israel? Megiddo's way up in the north. Josiah is king of Judah. The northern territory has long fallen, and it's under Assyria's control. Assyria is now radically weakened, but Assyria is still the dominant force in that northern kingdom. Moreover, Assyria had brought in hordes of non-Israelitish people and settled and populated the northern kingdom with people from all over the ancient world. So it's not Israel. And in a a sense, it's not Josiah's business. He is outside his sphere of proper, I don't know, opportunity, influence. It'd be like a a nation looking at the the distant corner of their next door neighbor and saying, "I, I need to intervene way down there. Canada coming in and saying, I, I need to intervene in American political, geopolitical situation or something like that. This is an area that the kings of Israel struggled to control because it had a major highway that the Hittites, Philistines, Syrians, Assyrians, and Egyptians vied to control. Uh, 
kind of a coastal route that then ran, ran through some of the passes near Megiddo and then turned inland. That's why they fought over this territory constantly. And Pharaoh Necho's just saying, I'm marching by. And I, I stayed to the coast, went through Philistine territory. Then he passed into Israelite, the northern kingdom, fallen territory. It's none of your business, Josiah. And so this brings us to a crucial detail from our text. Divine sovereignty is not threatened by human interference. Divine sovereignty is not threatened by human interference. The sheer creativity of human folly is nearly unbounded. Just when a parent thinks his children can't possibly come up with a more inane action, they surprise us again. Right? Well, you, you had a bunch of boys, Dr. Yeagley. Any kind of uh, intriguing conduct and behavior over the years? I walked out one side, I heard a little bit of a thumping around, and I walked out, and my son's on the roof. This was many years ago. Yeah, he's 17 now. When we moved where we were, he was six, I think. So at about age seven, he climbed up on the roof. There were not ladders set up anywhere. He had gone up the, the cross hatching of the logs, because we live in a log cabin, and gone back and forth and wormed his way up and then pushed himself under the eave up on the roof. I'm like, what could possibly go wrong? Well, I know what could possibly go wrong, because in the years following, one of our cats watched Daniel learn how to do the very same thing. And one time, the cat on his way down missed and hurt its back and was like limping around for the next month before he healed. So yeah, a lot can go wrong. Bad decisions can be made. So is divine sovereignty threatened by our bad decisions? Notice that folly overreaches proper roles. Verse 20. God had not called Josiah and Judah to govern the world. He had not asked Josiah to create an international peacekeeping force. Right? What's Josiah supposed to be doing? Governing Judah. Josiah, what are you doing so far outside your territory? Well, I mean, Israel used to be under... Judah's control and the house of David's control, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and I just, I'm going to keep those Egyptians from marching through. That's none of your business. Folly overreaches proper roles. God had not commanded Judah to take control of other territories, engage in expansionist behavior, protect trade routes, build a political dynasty, or anything outside of its allotted territory. And yet, there's Josiah, assuming that all these would be good ideas. I mean, after all, if you're a king, a little bit of expansionist activity in a power vacuum as Assyria gets weakened, maybe that'll be a good thing. Yeah, but why don't you ask the Lord first? Don't just assume. Folly tends to overreach our proper roles. Josiah assumed, and isn't that a big word in human folly? Well, I just assumed I ought to marry her. I assumed that it would be okay. I assumed that it was the right job. I assumed that the pay raise was enough to warrant the move. I assumed that God would want me to, and we can fill in that blank with thousands of assumptions. Assumptions are not necessarily the wisest course of action. 
And God does expect us to use um, sanctified imagination, but practical wisdom, practical wisdom alongside his word in making decisions. Now, his word always overrides practical wisdom. And I put that in quote, you know, air quotes. Because sometimes what humanity says is practical is contrary to truth and contrary to his power and his direct command. But where God has commanded and then left the door open-ended, we should be using wisdom. Next, folly meddles in others' business in verse 21. Now, Pharaoh Necho provides Josiah with crucial information that ought to have turned him back. Number one, my beef is not with Judah. Number two, I have a specific goal and a specific alliance in mind. I'm going up to fight at Carchemish. Third, God told Necho to hurry, and any delay could be disastrous. Now, we can almost grant uh, Josiah a, a little bit of slack here. I mean, if a pagan king told me, God told me to hurry, so get out of my way, I think, oh, well, if God told you to hurry, right? <laughs> Which God, though? Which God? Uh, Josiah wouldn't necessarily have recognized that the Lord was causing Pharaoh Necho to rush towards Carchemish on the Euphrates. So what is our, his, what is our historic situation? In 612 BC, Nineveh fell to an alliance of Babylon, Medea, and the Scythians. So Nineveh that had conquered the northern territory of Israel, itself is now collapsing. Its capital city has been sacked. The Assyrians, however, just moved their capital to Haran. That fell three years later in 609 BC. In 606, an additional three years later, Necho finally advances and defeats one Babylonian army. He's actually going to make two different incursions. The Bible only uh, uh, talks about the second of them. So this is not the right one yet that we see in our passage. So 606, Necho advanced and defeated a Babylonian army. And the Babylonian army withdrew to the east of the Euphrates River and kind of licked its wounds. Necho now advanced in 605 BC to the support of Assyria. Why? Well, the Babylonians have attacked and taken Nineveh. They've pushed the Assyrians to Haran. The Assyrians have scattered from Haran into the, what we would call Lebanon, uh, eastern Turkey, and Syria regions. Now Pharaoh Necho is advancing as quickly as he possibly can to the support of the scattered remnants of Assyria. He needed to get his army back to Haran ahead of Nebuchadnezzar, the new commander of the Babylonian army. But he was delayed. So here he's trying to get to Haran again. Why? Because the Babylonians were driven east of the Euphrates. If I attack soon enough, I'll retake one of the major capitals of Assyria and establish an empire to fight the Babylonians. Uh, quick question, just, just check your history. Who's the next big major um, enemy of Judah at the time of our story? Babylon. Wait, who was Necho advancing to fight? Babylon. So Josiah is going to get in the way of someone who's trying to attack the upcoming power 
with the upcoming general Nebuchadnezzar who's going to become king and destroy Judah? Yes. Well, he couldn't possibly have known all of that. True story, right? We know that we can't see the future, so there's no way that that Josiah could have figured all of this out ahead of time. But he could have figured out that it's foolishness to meddle in other people's business. We have enough biblical insight by Josiah's time to be aware of that much. And yet he meddles in it nonetheless. At the Battle of Carchemish on the Euphrates, because after Haran... um, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to advance, and because of the delay, because of Josiah's delaying Necho, the Babylonians are able to reinforce Haran, and so it is the Egyptians and Assyrians that have to retreat in front of the Babylonians instead of vice versa. And so they had to withdraw then to Carchemish. At the Battle of Carchemish on the Euphrates, Necho and the small remnant of the Assyrian army were destroyed. So Egypt and Assyria fall at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar advanced on and laid siege to Jerusalem in 605, just after Carchemish. And Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, is going to become Nebuchadnezzar's vassal. So a lot is going on here. A lot is going on here. And we think, oh, but this is so incredibly disappointing because Josiah's folly gets judged by God. No, it doesn't get judged by God. Inadvertently, Josiah's folly led to Nebuchadnezzar's victory in battle, which led to Judah's immediate reduction to vassal status and set the stage for the fall of Judah altogether. Nice going, Josiah. Well, hindsight's 20-20. But so is foresight when God is involved. Did Did you hear that? Hindsight is twenty twenty, but so is foresight where God is involved. Do you remember one of the verses that we read already today, 2 Kings 23, that told us something about the future? Josiah, righteous, good, godly, exalted. But Judah? Verse 27, the wrath of God would not be turned away, and I will remove my people just as I removed them from Israel, the northern kingdom. And I will remove this city where I said I would put my... God had already predicted in Josiah's time. He didn't say that Babylon was going to be the one to do it. Well, actually, he had a little scatterings of Isaiah uh, ahead of time. We're talking about the rise of Babylon, and Babylon is coming. But God has already, with his perfect foresight, told the people of Judah that because of their wickedness, judgment is going to come. He's already promised this fall, even at the apex of Josiah's power. So Josiah's folly actually neither slowed nor advanced God's purposes ultimately. God would have his way. Human folly does have natural consequences. But it does not interfere with the sovereignty of God. It may play a role in the execution of God's plan, but it does not thwart that plan. This gives us great hope. Hope as we look back at the past. Hope as we look forward to the future. Yes, we have a responsibility to act wisely. But our folly, our Again, natural, normal, human, lack of insight and wisdom 
does not impede God's plan. And so there are times I do look back and I think, should I really have done that? Should I have bought that? Should I have gone here? Should I have committed to that job? Should I have... Yeah, my main responsibility, yes. But should I have committed to these other jobs? Should I have taken on these extra tasks, these extra roles? Oh, that was a bad idea. Now I'm overly fatigued and I shouldn't have... And yet, in the midst of it all, the Lord is navigating my life and causing it to achieve his objective, his outcome. And I don't have to be afraid. My confidence actually rises if I read a passage like this carefully. My confidence rises. Oh, I, I'm gonna, I could die in the process of be, doing something stupid. But if I do, it's because God was done with me. If I do, it's because it was exactly God's plan unfolding in his own timing. So we have something that seems anticlimactic here. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, 2 Chronicles 35, 22, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him to his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Divine sovereignty is not blunted by human tragedy. Accidents are not accidents in God's sovereignty. I love this. Is there any king that experienced something a little bit like this? Think, think through Josiah's process. He's going to fight Necho. What did he do? He disguised himself so that he wouldn't look like the king. And who ended up shooting him? It was the archers shooting a disguised individual. This looks a lot like whom? Ahab. Except that Josiah is righteous and Ahab is wicked. The point is not that we lump Josiah in with Ahab. Do you get the point? A wicked person tries to subvert God's processes through subterfuge and disguise. And what happens? God's plan is achieved anyway. A righteous person, he's not trying to get around and skirt God's plan, but he is trying to skirt natural consequences in battle. And what happens anyway? God's plan. You say, well, God's plan is to kill this guy, but he was righteous. Yeah. And he was an obstacle to what? To the wrath of God being poured out on the rest of a wicked nation. What we call accidents are just startling exhibitions of God's sovereignty. What we call accidents are just startling exhibitions of God's sovereignty. You look back in life and reflect on that fact, and there could be a whole lot greater confidence going forward. It didn't just happen. It was God's plan. A number of years ago, a flock of birds landed in a holly bush behind our house. Holly is in the uh, genus Ilex. 
which is Latin related to vertigo, basically, and it, it makes you loopy. So as the birds ate the berries, gorged on berries, the birds got drunk, for, for lack of a better word. They got more and more loopy. And this entire flight of birds, there were probably 2,000 birds there, started doing stupid things. Some of them were just like, mm, plop, right out of the branches. And then a bunch started flying into our picture window. We had a, a, about a five foot by five foot. And they, I mean, flying hard, bang, dropping on the ground, one after another after another. And it was like raining birds down on the ground. And uh, it was startling because they, you know, they could do that at force and it's shocking. You're inside and you're jumping every time they do that. Well, I went out after the flock had departed finally and there were dead birds all over. And I picked up one of them and looked at it and thought, wow, what a waste. What a, I mean, just accidents happen and it's just, it's just pointless. Well, not ultimately in God's plan. Neither the sparrow falling to the earth nor the child of God suffering anything is apart from God's plan. And death is not a defeat in light of God's sovereignty. Josiah's death would bring his son Jehoiakim to power. Jehoiakim would be a failure. He would walk in the ways of Manasseh. So from a human point of view, Josiah's death was a pointless, terrible end to a good life. Premature! What good might he have done in Judah? What a waste. And in God's plan, the removal of Josiah, and let's put it in those terms, the removal, the divine removal of Josiah was so that God could bring judgment on the nation. Death is not a defeat. God removed his servant before he brought judgment to the city. And what kind of judgment was Judah going to experience? I know we're going a little long. Can you bear with me? If you have to go, go. I'm, I'm going to keep going for briefly. Okay. What kind of warfare was going to be fought here? Babylon is going to surround the city and invest it. What happens next? You yell it out. When you invest a city, what happens? You capture it eventually, but that's a long time. The reason you invest the city is because you can't get through the walls easily. So what are you going to do? Starve them. Starvation leads to, maybe some of our medical professionals can help us, starvation, innervate the human body, and what happens? Besides, we feel hungry. (laughs) Death. Yes, death. There are several intermediate steps that are pretty grotesque, though. Cannibalism, which is going to happen in Judah. What's that? Submission. They're going to submit eventually. What about disease? Disease. Anybody notice you get sick during the winter? There are a variety of reasons for that, but one of which is you can't get enough vitamin D because we're at a sufficiently northern latitude that we can't get enough direct rays of the sunlight that is in a certain area that we have to have. The sun is only like good for us vitamin D from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And when it sinks towards the southern horizon, good luck with that. You don't get enough sun to generate enough vitamin D. We don't have enough vitamin D. Your immune system is worn down. When your immune system is worn down, you get sick. When you get sick, well, all sorts of bad things happen. So it's one of the many reasons we get sick during the winter. Now, take away your food supply and you're emaciated People are dying of starvation, of disease, 
cannibalism, infighting, internal conflict, hostility of neighbor against neighbor, of parent against child, of child against parent. All of the, the wild animals are running amok because there's lots of food. It's gross to think there's lots of food when people are dropping dead all around you for wild animals. And who did not have to witness any of it? Josiah. But Lord, you cut him off in the midst. No. I removed him so that he did not have to see the horror and the savagery and the ravaging of my wrath. In the sovereignty of God, God has worked things out actually to glorify his servant, take him directly into the divine presence where there is no pain or suffering ever again. He is promoted. He is not harmed. I once made a really bad investment. I lost 97% of the value of the investment. And it went on for years and years and years. It never really recouped it. When it it finally got back to 30% of the original value, I sold it. And I learned a lot. It was foolish. It was a really bad decision on my part. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot about investing. I learned a lot about life. It fit God's purposes for my life. So I don't have to stew over the past. I can trust the Lord, choose not to carry a guilt over things that are not morally laden, and recognize that God is in control. Folly does have consequences, but it cannot thwart God's purposes. So as we enter a new year, trust him in wisdom. Father, we're thankful for a testimony like this. Thank you that your servants are never ultimately harmed. We're hurt. We suffer very short-term reversals and losses in this world, but even death itself is not an ultimate harm. The enemy is defeated, and in your plans for us, you have elevated us to your presence. So we look forward to the day, not, not that we are hastening to get there or cut short our lives by foolishness, but we recognize that even the decisions that we make day in and day out with insufficient knowledge are never going to thwart your purposes. And so we never need to fear or worry about the present, but instead place our full confidence and hope in you in this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>